When people um, imagine the word recession, they imagine this sort of precipitous collapse in everything. You know, asset prices collapsing, employment collapsing. And that's because we've been used to these sort of deep financial-based recessions. You know, we had dot-com, we had the global financial crisis, we had Sweden in the early 90s, we had Japan in the early 1990s. Well, we just don't have that today. I think you could have a mild recession, but it's, you know, it may not even feel like a recession to a lot of people. You know, we had a we had a boom and a recovery that never really felt like a boom. Maybe we end up with a recession that never really feels like a recession. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dario Perkins. Dario is Managing Director of Global Macro at uh, TS Lombard. Uh, Dario has been in the markets as an economist for many years, started off in the UK Treasury, where he um, put together Gordon Brown's uh, Global Macro Forecasts, also worked as a senior European economist at ABN AMRO uh, before going back to the Treasury and then joined uh, T.S. Lombard over a decade ago. Dario, great to have you with us. How is all on your side? Yeah, all good. Um, it's good to be on the show and good to, good to talk to you. Got a, a slight case of man flu, as my wife describes it. But apart from that, everything's good. <laughs> Hopefully that won't won't detract from the overall experience. I'm sure it won't. Um, as we like to do, we always like to ask our guests to give us a little uh, sense in their backgrounds. I gave a, a kind of a brief overview of your experience, but how did you end up in, in economics in the first place? Well, you know, when I was a teenager, I wasn't exactly dreaming of being an economist. You know, I'd, I'd watched a Top Gun movie and wanted to be a fighter pilot, <laughs> given the way the world's going, it's probably a good thing I wasn't. Um, I think I went on a, uh, a school visit to the Bank of England Museum and sort of weirdly fell in love with economics, um, studied it at university, and then went as a summer student to the Treasury. Uh, I really enjoyed it there, and so I went back after my degree. Um, you know, it was a good place to be in the late 90s because that sort of era of yes minister you know of bureaucracy and seniority 
were sort of breaking down, you know, with Ed Balls and Gordon Brown coming in, they, they gave young economists a lot more freedom, sent you all over the world, you know, talking to the likes of Ben Bernanke and Mervyn King. So um, it was a good place to be and I learned a lot. And, um, you know, by sort of 2014, I was doing Gordon Brown's global forecast. Um, but over time, you know, the, the fact that your wage isn't really growing, uh, that a lot of people you went to university with were suddenly, you know, driving fancy cars and earning many multiples of what you're earning at the treasury. And the fact that, you, you, you know, you can't get any sort of acknowledgement for anything you do because you're just a sort of, you know, civil servant with no name and no no way of publishing, you know, your your studies and stuff, you um, you become frustrated. And so, you know, 2014, I moved to investment banking. I was working at ABN AMRO. Um, that all went extremely well until um, the sort of takeover from RBS and then obviously the nationalization. Uh, and, you know, I left um, RBS at the sort of height of the financial crisis um, decided to go back to the treasury just on a sort of three-year fixed role. And it was an interesting role because it was sort of reviewing internally um, the Bank of England's uh, inflation remit and looking at the lessons from the financial crisis and whether something needed to change at the Bank of England. Uh, and I was looking at creating this new financial policy committee at the Bank of England, so sort of learning the lessons of systemic risk and thinking of ways that the bank might be able to deal with that in the future. You know, after three years there, quickly remembered all of the reasons I left in the first place. Uh, didn't want to go back to investment banking because of the whole RBS fiasco and realized that, you know, a good sort of compromise would be uh, independent macro research. So, you know, you get a lot of the benefits of working in investment banking without the sort of drawbacks and the, you know, the risks. And it's still, you know, a much more interesting role than being at the treasury. So for me, this is, this has worked pretty well. You know, I get a lot of freedom, uh, can cover anything I want. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's a good place to be. Very good. And it, historically it was Lombard Street and then became TS Lombard and global data TS Lombard. So you're covering global macro and global geopolitics and, and asset allocation. Is that right? Yeah. So we have a strategy team, um, that looks at asset allocation. We have um, a sort of history of uh, policy analysis and geopolitics that comes from the trusted sources side. That's the TS in TS Lombard. And obviously, you know, originally Lombard Street was all about monetary analysis and financial markets. And so there's a sort of liquidity emphasis that comes from that. But, you know, my role is, you know, very much sort of standard macro, you know, thinking about how the global economy is evolving uh, looking at sort of long-term trends and trying to translate that into sort of simple language for asset allocators. Good stuff. Well, that's a good segue into the current uh, question or dilemma in markets. Um, you know, a lot of people are wondering, you know, why has this cycle been different? And obviously we've had a big shift up in interest rates uh, and, and many economists have been forecasting a recession but it hasn't arrived. So, I mean, what's your take on what's happened and uh, why why has the consensus been so wrong? I think that um, people have just misunderstood this economy ever since the sort of lockdown period. Um, there's been this continuous attempt to impose a sort of business cycle framework. So, you know, for three years, I've had investors saying, where are we in the cycle? 
Uh, and my response is always the same. You know, this ain't a cycle. It never was a cycle. You know, there's nothing organic about this business cycle. Uh, we shut down the global economy. We reopened the global economy. We created, you know, enormous amounts of pent up demand. We put in enormous one-off fiscal stimulus. We created massive um, disruption in global supply chains. None of this was a sort of normal organic business cycle. So this idea that everybody had at the start of the year that, you know, we have very high inflation, we had very low unemployment. So the Phillips curve said you had to have a recession in order to get inflation down. That was all wrong. No, that was all much too deterministic. Um, it was a complete misreading of, of the economy. And I think, you know, what we've discovered through the course of this year is that a big part of that inflation was artificial. It would have come down anyway. Uh, and we've been on this sort of path to a soft landing. Now, you know, the path is still pretty precarious. Um, I think it's it's sort of ironic that everyone has given up on their recession forecast over the last two months, because I would say the risk of a recession has probably increased over the past two months. Uh, but at the moment, we're still on that path to, you know, a pretty softish landing. Very good. Um, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously there was a lot of kind of expectation from very big names in the economics world around the pain coming from this. And I guess team transitory were much maligned initially, but it sounds like you think they were ultimately right. Is that fair to say? Um, I don't know if you could say they were ultimately right. I think a big part of the inflation was transitory for sure. Uh, I think that what they got wrong is that they sort of downplayed first how much inflation could actually rise and second, how long it would stay at those sorts of levels. But the big thing they got wrong was obviously the policy response because the whole conclusion of team transitory was that central banks didn't need to do anything, that they would just leave interest rates on hold and wait for the inflation to come down. And that was just a complete misreading of the way central banks were thinking about this, because I think you had to think about it from a central banker perspective. And this is, you know, one of the things I tried to highlight, you know, talking to investors in 2022, when central banks were becoming very, very aggressive, is that, you know, if you're a central banker and you're seeing inflation at the highest levels in 40 years and you don't do anything about it, there is a very good chance that you're going to go down in history looking like a complete joker. And I think, you know, you had to look at it from their perspective. And, um, you know, it would be even worse than the 1970s because we spent sort of 40 years looking at the 1970s, thinking how did central banks make all these terrible mistakes? How did they let it happen? Well, this time it would have been how did they let it happen again? You know, with the 1970s as a template. So I think central bankers were only ever going to respond the way they responded, which was to freak out and to raise interest rates very, very aggressively. And as soon as they raised interest rates very aggressively, the whole debate about transitory inflation just became meaningless because you could never know for sure what would have happened without that massive policy response. Yeah. It's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, we, we don't know the answer. Um, we know what central banks will be telling us. They'll be telling us <laughs> they were the ones that delivered. <laughs> yeah, no, they will, of course. Yeah, they'll say <laughs> that they originally got it wrong, but they brought inflation down, which obviously is questionable. Well, look, this, is, this is what I've been saying you know, recently to investors, is that if we do get a soft landing out of this, we will never hear the end of it because this will be independent central bankers' finest moment. 
You know, they will tell us that we were facing a rerun of the 1970s, that if it wasn't for them, we would have had the 1970s, but it was their aggressive and timely response that prevented all of that. And we know they love a good counterfactual, and we know they like to take credit for everything. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the beauty of economics and global macro, isn't it? <laughs> but, I mean, okay, you make a good point. It, it, it's not certainly not a conventional business cycle, for sure. It's been a very unusual uh, setup. So with that as a backdrop, I mean, where are we now? Obviously, Q3 GDP, you know, uh, 4.5%, 4.9%, whatever it was in the US is very, you know, unusual at, at any point. And, and, and obviously, listening to the Fed last week, they, they, they presumably don't think that that kind of level of growth is going to be sustained. But, you know, obviously, the, the, the US consumer is spending at a fairly rapid rate uh, the economy is growing strongly. Okay, unemployment has ticked up, but it remains at kind of close to multi-decade lows. Given that it's been all kind of artificially generated in response to COVID, how does it play out from here? Well, I think inflation is back down to where they need it to be. So, you know, all the stuff about um, wanting to get inflation back down to 2%, I think, you know, 3 3.5% inflation, which is what we have now, pretty much all across the developed world, that's perfectly tolerable. That's perfectly acceptable. You know, they will say it's not, but, you know, if you'd offered this to them 12 months ago, they would have bitten your hand off. So I think from an inflation point of view, we're where we need to be. I think that they have been worried about what they describe as a sort of underlying imbalance in the economy. And this is the fact that we've had three years of very strong labor demand, but labor supply in many countries actually went down during the pandemic. So you've had this big imbalance in the labor market. And I think that was the bit that made people think we had to have a, a hard landing because we needed to get employment down and that would inevitably mean that um, unemployment went up. But that's not what's happened because what's happened is uh, central banks have managed to destroy demand in the labor market, but a lot of that demand wasn't being realized anyway because it was job openings and job vacancies. So this was the very acute labor shortages that we had after the pandemic. And so I think we've seen these labor markets beginning to rebalance. You know, the labor demand has gone down and because that's gone through lower job vacancies rather than lower employment, uh, they've managed to deliver that rebalancing without unemployment going up. So that's, you know, I'd say so far so good. You know, inflation is where we want it to be. Labor market is rebalancing. I wouldn't attach too much weight to, you know, the GDP growth numbers. I think they were erratically strong uh, in the in Q3 in the US. They're coming down, inevitably coming down. But I think it's all about the labor market at this point. And so, you know, we have tight monetary policy everywhere. The question is, uh, will we continue to get demand destruction in the labor market without unemployment going up? And I think in Europe, it's looking a little bit precarious right now. You know, I think that labor labor market is looking quite dangerous. Uh, you know, the one thing we have going for us is that European companies tend to hoard labor, so they're not going to be quick to start firing people. So that's that helps you if you're looking for a soft landing. But I think we have to remember that monetary policy is an incredibly blunt tool. And so what's gone well over the past 12 months is that we've destroyed labor demand, most in sectors that had the biggest labor shortages. So we've taken out some of the heat in the labor market without causing unemployment to go up. 
The risk, I think, is that we start to lose jobs in sectors where there are not big labor shortages. And that would be, you know, the beginning of mismatch in labor markets. That would see uh, the labor market start, start to weaken more seriously. That would be your hard landing scenario. I don't think there's anything inevitable about that, but I think that's the thing that I'm watching. And I think you have to watch credit markets because the credit cycle now is clearly turning. You know, we're seeing default rates going up. We're seeing bankruptcies going up. We're seeing uh, delinquency rates and consumer debt beginning to go up. So far, I think that looks like a sort of normalization. So again, comes back to the fake cycle. You know, we had a two-year period where uh, central banks and governments basically put the credit cycle into this complete hibernation. So you couldn't default or go bankrupt in that period because governments wouldn't allow you. They backstopped everything. Uh, that policy support, support has been removed. And so we're beginning to see a sort of pent-up stress and strains in the credit system. I think so far that's a sort of normalization. But again, you know, this is something that we have to watch. So I would say, you know, we're still on that that path to a soft landing. But I think over the last couple of months, it's beginning to look quite treacherous. So the irony is that, you know, all of those people that were forecasting a recession at the, at the start of the year and have since capitulated and given up on those recession calls because there's only so long you can stay wrong in this industry. They may discover that, you know, we, we, the hard landing sort of starts just at the point where they gave up. Mm. And uh, I mean, yeah. Obviously, a lot of people have been wrong, but I mean, for when rates go from zero to five and a half percent or whatever in in a space of eighteen months, you would normally expect some kind of reaction from even a simple economic model suggests that you should have less investment and in consumer demand. Presumably, has that surprised you, or do you think it comes back to what you said at the outset about this being an unusual? cycle or, 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 or I, I guess the flip side is, you know, are we still to see the, the, um, the full extent of that? Is the lag of monetary policy longer than people assumed or is it just are people impatient or how do you read all of that in terms of the transmission mechanism of monetary policy? Yeah, I mean, the long and variable lags is the, the sort of cliche uh, response. Um, I think that, um, you know, the resilience of the economy this year isn't that surprising. I think that we had, um, uh, you know, the, the big thing about the sort of fake cycle is that it created this big deterioration in leading indicators that weren't necessarily a sign that the economy was headed into a recession. So the obvious thing is that, you know, if we're all at home buying stuff off the internet, you're going to get an enormous boom in global manufacturing, consumer goods, world trade. And, you know, typically we create leading indicators for the economy based on what's happening in the manufacturing sector. But, you know, as we came out of lockdowns and the economy pivoted back into sort of more normal spending patterns and you had pent up demand for experiences rather than goods, um, you were always going to get uh, a manufacturing and global trade recession. And so if you were building leading indicators for the economy based on the manufacturing sector, you were getting this enormous head fake from those indicators. So some of it was that, um, you know, the economy was never on the brink of that recession. The other part of it is the demand that came out of goods went into services. Uh, services are, you know, naturally a source of demand for workers because that's what a services is. You know, it's the services of labor. And so you had a lot of resilience in labor markets. Now, it doesn't make sense to talk about a recession if employment is still growing. 
because you know a recession is not an event. It's not two quarters of negative GDP growth. It is about uh, a process that happens in labor markets. So people start to lose their jobs, confidence goes down, consumption goes down. As a result, corporate revenues go down and then this reflexivity kicks in because then you get more rounds of redundancies. That is the recessionary process. We're just not seeing that anywhere this year. And then the other big part of it is that, you know, we've we've um, seen a lot of demand destruction in labor markets that's happened uh, and it's happened through vacancies and job openings, as I said, rather than employment. So all of this together gives you a very resilient outlook. Um, I think that, you know, the recession risk was always about monetary policy. So we had a fake cycle. Central banks freaked out. They raised interest rates very aggressively. The recession risk was always that they'd raised interest rates too much and would then be too slow to reverse course, you know, when the economy started to deteriorate. Um, that risk is still there. Um, I think that um, what we're seeing in terms of the impact of monetary policy is basically playing out the way that we should have expected it. Uh, I think there are, there are two effects from monetary tightening. So the first one is a flow effect. So you basically cut off um, the availability of credit or you make credit too expensive. So anything that is very interest rate sensitive, like construction activity, housing activity, demand for cars, all of that stuff has plunged pretty much everywhere all across the world. So we're seeing, you know, the sort of first impulse of monetary policy, and we've been seeing that for the better part of 12 months now. The second effect is a sort of stock effect from monetary tightening, and that's all about existing debt holders. So if you have lots of variable rate mortgages, uh, if you have a lot of uh, short-term floating rate uh, corporate debt, then you get a big squeeze on existing debt holders. Now, that effect has started... Um, but it's quite uneven across different countries. So if you think about the US, you have everyone on a 30-year mortgage. You have this big terming out of corporate debt that's happened over the last decade. So that stock effect from monetary tightening is pretty much absent. You know, you're not really seeing that in the US, but you are seeing it in Europe. So if you look at the interest rate that companies and households are playing, paying on their existing debts, that's gone up massively as the ECB and the Bank of England have raised interest rates. And you know, in the Bank of England case, there's still more of this to come because everybody's on two-year fixed-rate mortgages. So I think you know, we're seeing an effect from monetary policy. It's been all about that flow effect. The stock effect has started, uh, and it is much more powerful in Europe. So if you think about that recession risk uh, coming from monetary policy over-tightening, I would say that Europe is much closer to a situation where central banks have over-tightened already compared to the US, where I don't think the Fed has over-tightened yet. Well, in Europe, of course, uh, obviously Europe is grappling with a number of challenges. You've got Germany with what you might say are structural challenges in relation to the higher energy costs and some of their kind of um, industrial and chemical industries maybe no longer... Um, viable, you know, given the, the kind of change energy price landscape. But also, um, you know, I did see in some of the research you've written recently that some of the countries, I think France has had a, a much higher uh, debt service costs or, or, or higher debt levels. But in Europe, you know, which countries would you see as being most vulnerable to, you know, the, the, the extreme tightening from the ECB? 
Um, in terms of just the tightening from the ECB, I think you're looking at um, where you see that sort of set that sensitivity for debt. So um, there's um, you know any of the periphery countries they've they sort of pivoted into fixed rate mortgages, um, but the stock of mortgages still has a very big floating rate. So um, you know Portugal, Spain, you know, those are the obvious countries that get squeezed very quickly uh, by mortgage rates going up. On the corporate side, um, it's not just a question of um, the type of debt that you have, but also the amount of debt. So if you look at somewhere like France, uh, you have massive sensitivity to interest rates just because um, French companies have taken on so much debt over the past 15 years. And then you look at Germany, um, it has long-term fixed rate mortgages, so that's a good thing, um, but it also has massive um, sensitivity to the commercial real estate sector. So I worry a little bit about that. In aggregate, I don't think we're looking at anything like, you know, what happened after the subprime crisis, because if you think about um, the last decade, you basically had deleveraging across all of the developed world. So, you know, private sector debt levels, particularly on the household side, are down substantially since 2008. So it's not like we're looking at this sort of ticking time bomb or something, you know, going to go terribly wrong, just like, as it did after the global financial crisis. But I think there are vulnerabilities there. And, you know, if it is just a question of the ECB having raised interest rates too far, all of this is solvable as long as they then reverse course quite quickly. And my worry is that just as we had that sort of perverse uh, reverse currency war last year, where all of these central banks tried to match the Fed policy tightening one for one because they were worried about their currencies going down, I don't think we want to be in a situation where the ECB or the Bank of England are worried about cutting interest rates just because the Fed is on hold, because they're worried about the currency, because that would be bizarre. You know, if in one sense, you know, you're sort of, you've lost that currency war, whatever you do, because if you cut interest rates while the Fed is in hold, your currency is going to go down. If you just ignore the fact that your economy is deteriorating, your currency is still going to go down because you know, allowing your economy to implode is a pretty bad way to defend your currency. But you would hope that these central banks realise the mistake that they've made and pivot quite quickly, regardless of what the Fed does. But inflation has been a little bit stickier in Europe. Is that now fair to say? I mean, it hasn't come down as much. I mean, would that not be the ECB's defence? And do you still think, are there any unique factors in Europe that might make... Uh, Inflation stayed a little bit stickier. That 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 could contribute to that scenario that you're playing. You're you're mapping out. I I'd say I'd have more sympathy for the Bank of England than the ECB. Uh, I think that the UK has been this sort of nasty mix of the euro area and the US. So it's had um, the European energy crisis, but it's also had the US labour market crisis, and a lot of that was sort of self-imposed. So you know, after a decade of austerity and Brexit. Uh, we've seen a lot of supply um, destruction in the UK economy. So I think that the Bank of England is in a much more difficult situation. You know, the supply side has deteriorated. Um, they've got a nastier trade-off between growth and inflation. They will probably have to tolerate higher inflation than they did in the past. You know, that's probably the, the least nasty way to get through that. Um, but the ECB, I just think that they've overreacted. You know, they saw this sort of um, weird 1970s dynamic that was largely in their minds, you know, this idea that inflation was becoming unanchored, 
that the inflation expectations were rising, um, that they were sort of losing some sort of central bank confidence fairy. Um, I think it was mainly a figment of their imagination. I think euro area inflation has basically just lagged the US, uh, but it's had an extra component coming from food and energy prices because of what happened in Ukraine. To me, um, I think you're going to get quite rapid disinflation now in the euro area. We just have to hope that it's quick enough for the ECB to be able to pivot before their policies to create too much unnecessary damage. I mean, we've gone back a few minutes. We were talking about this hypothetical scenario if, if the central banks hadn't tightened and it, you know, it was all just transitory. But there has been a real change in the markets of late. I mean, obviously, we've had a significant rise in bond yields. And you could say, well, is that just driven in response to the market, just pricing? you know, uh, future monetary policy as well. Uh, but, you know, it, we've had a big shift in real bond yields as well. And economists would typically say, well, real bond yields are driven by real factors and, you know, the the relationship between savings and investment. So when you look at the big jump in real bond yields in the US, how do you read that? I think that a big part of it is about um, economic resilience. So I think at the start of the tightening cycle, there was an there was a view that um, these economies were very very sensitive to interest rates, and as soon as interest rates went up, the economy would just implode. So you know every sort of uh, central bank hike just caused the yield curve to invert more on this view that you know the more they hike now, the more they'd have to cut in the future. So a big part of it is about economic resilience. So the global economy has proved much more resilient than people expected. And so that, I think, has lifted bond yields. Uh, why, why do you think that, that was? Or why were people wrong? Because as you say, if we went back to the start of the tightening cycle, there was this sense that the Fed funds wouldn't go above 2.5% because of all the debt in the system. Was Did people just forget about the fact that most of that debt was refinanced at low rates? Or, or, or what, what, what was it? Uh, some of it is is the fact that it has been turned out. So that's that's the best part of it. Uh, another part of it is that um, we're so used to this idea that global debt has gone up over the past decade, is that we forget the sources of that debt. So part of it was government debt. It wasn't private sector debt. Um, a big part of it was China. You know, China is the one part of the world that has had a massive private sector debt model. Uh, but for most developed economies, the amount of private debt, particularly on the household side, has gone down. So that naturally made us less sensitive to interest rates. And then we had this this sort of rotation into fixed rate and you know longer term debt, which has also helped from that perspective. So I think I think you know that that's that's probably the, the, the sort of big story there, you know, shifts in in the nature of the debts that we've had. And you know, the simple story here is that um, we had a credit cycle that never really cycled. You know, we had a decade of very subdued credit growth, you know, the sort of credit-less expansion. And so that naturally made us less sensitive. But we also, um, you know, people have a sort of partial way of thinking about this. You know, they think, well, if the interest rate goes up 500 basis points, that must mean that debt is no longer sustainable. But what they're forgetting is that nominal incomes went up a lot too. So nominal earnings for corporates went up massively during the pandemic. Nominal wages have been growing more quickly pretty much everywhere. And that sort of speeded up this year. So 
the way to really think about debt sustainability is not just by shocking the level of interest rates and thinking about what that does. It's about thinking in terms of R minus G, you know, the difference between interest rates and income, income growth. And we're used to doing that for government. So people always think about government debt in terms of R minus G, but for some weird reason, nobody does it with private sector debts. And so, you know, the analysis I've been doing over the past 18 months, you know, plugging in terminal interest rates into debt servicing ratios for companies and households suggested that we should have been all right, you know, even with interest rates going up, that there wasn't some big tipping point that was waiting to happen. But obviously, you know, this is a dynamic that is still playing out and some mortgages will, will reset, some companies will need to refinance. So there's still an additional squeeze that is coming. That's why, you know, I wouldn't just completely dismiss the idea that we could yet tip over into something nastier. Okay. Yeah, I want to talk about our, our minus G, but just before, as you mentioned something nastier, I mean, it has, and you did mention commercial real estate in Germany, um, but obviously commercial real estate around the world has been challenged, uh, particularly, you know, obviously in the office sector. And I have seen some research around this in terms of the amount of, you know, uh, commercial real estate that was refinanced around that 2019 time and suggesting that we may move into a period 2024, 2025, where a lot of that debt has a kind of a, a refinancing feature after about five years. Is that something that is on your radar as as a risk? Uh, or do you think that's significant enough to, to be concerned about? Um, I think a lot of rich people are going to lose money in commercial real estate. Um, I think that uh, from a sort of macro perspective, um, you know, people draw this comparison with subprime, but it's just totally different. I mean, you know, commercial real estate is not systemic in the way that residential property markets were. So if you look at the early 2000s, you had massive um, credit growth, uh, you know, household credit growth as a result of that long housing bubble. But you also had economies everywhere channeling more and more resources into the residential property market. So you had, um, you know, big increases in employment, big increases in investment. You don't see any of that with commercial real estate. So you could get something quite nasty in the commercial real estate sector, and a lot of people could lose money, but you're not going to see, you know, systemic macro consequences in the way that we had after the subprime crisis. Mm. No, it's fair enough. I mean, as you say, um, we've had the growth of private credit as well and private markets. So it's a lot of that disintermediation or intermediation has been done by the private sector as opposed to the banking sector. I mean, the US regional banks is one sector where people are pointing out a, a high sensitivity to uh, commercial real estate, but but obviously they've had a big rally in the last couple of weeks or last week, I guess. So so less concern there, but as you say, not not systemic. So maybe well, go back I think, to, I think yeah. there's a slow burn sort of bank crisis in that sense. You know, there there are a lot of similarities with um, you know the savings and loan crisis in the US um, in the late '80s and early '90s, and um, you know we had a recession in in 1990, um, but it wasn't you know a deep recession. It wasn't anything like what we had after the global financial crisis. So even though you had you know central banks over tightening. And you had these problems in the banking sector, you didn't end up with some sort of big systemic credit event or, you know, some horrendous balance sheet recession. So, you know, I take some comfort from that. You know, I, I think that that is, um, you know, a source of optimism, particularly compared to the past. I, I think that's a broader question here. 
about recession because when people um, imagine the word recession, they imagine this sort of precipitous collapse in everything. You know, asset prices collapsing, employment collapsing. And that's because we've been used to these sort of deep financial-based recessions. You know, we had dot-com, we had the global financial crisis, we had Sweden in the early 90s, we had Japan in the early 1990s. And, you know, the reason for that is that there was always some deep underlying macro financial imbalance in the economy. Well, we just don't have that today. You know, people have spent the last 15 years looking for the big short two, you know, the big Lehman moment in the global economy. And it's not there, you know, not through lack of analysis trying to find it. It isn't there. And so, you know, we could have a recession, but it would be a pretty standard recession, which would just be central banks over tighten, economy starts to weaken. As soon as people start to lose their jobs, central banks will pivot very aggressively because there is no way, you know, they can talk this game about how they might have to endure some pain and they want to be just like Paul Volcker in the 1980s. But there is no political tolerance for a big rise in unemployment. So as soon as the labour market genuinely starts to break, all of these central banks will capitulate. And so I think I think you could have a mild recession, but it's you know it may not even feel like a recession to a lot of people. You know we had a we had a boom and a recovery that never really felt like a boom. Maybe we end up with a recession that never really feels like a recession. Fair enough. I mean, in fairness, like in 1990s, you mentioned the savings and loan uh, recession. I mean, when you got the recovery, it was a jobless recovery in the early 90s. So, that, so there was some pain there that was felt economically for, for, for a number of years. But I take your point that not every recession is a global financial crisis, so we shouldn't always be looking for that. So I, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, no, I, I think 1990 would be a sort of worst case for me. Okay, um, yeah. I could see, you know, a sort of technical recession, um, particularly in Europe, but I, I don't think we're going to get a big rise in unemployment because there's just still, you know, massive labour shortages. So... It's hard to see big rise in unemployment in that sort of environment. Okay, fair enough. I mean, we touched a little bit about debt sustainability and R minus G, and obviously there's the R side and the G side. And I, I, I mean, a lot of this question, I think, comes around to, you know, what's the next decade going to look like? You know, we, we had a, an economic picture of the 2010s that was low variability in inflation, low economic growth, low variability in economic growth. You know, the Fed was, Jerome Powell, if you listen to him, he always, you know, talks about the 2019 and when they almost had this perfect labor market and he'd love to get back there. And, you know, all of the various subcategories were coming down, youth unemployment, black unemployment, all of these things. Can we go back there or because of COVID and the policy experiment, has that knocked everything out of equilibrium? And, and what does this next decade look like in, in your opinion? Well, the only way we go back there is a sort of, you know, gut-wrenching, head-clutching, Old Testament-style recession. You know, that would be, you know, if we have a sort of early 1980s-style recession, that would reset the clock. You know, we'd be back to zero interest rates. We'd be back to negative interest rates in Europe. We'd be back to sort of perma-QE. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but I think um, the world has changed, but I think it's changing in quite a subtle way. And if I was to distill that into a, a very simple idea, it would be that 2% inflation, which used to be a ceiling on inflation, so we were always trying to get inflation up to 2%, and that was the sort of macro challenge of the 2010s, that 2% becomes a floor on inflation. So from now on, the whole bias in monetary policy 
shifts. You know, it's not about, you know, persistent four or five or 6% inflation, but it is about a world where the prevailing tendency of inflation changes. And so, you know, your basic role as a central banker is no longer about getting inflation up at all costs. It's, you know, occasionally and more frequently than in the past, having to actually restrain. And so, you know, in terms of what that means, well, let's think about why that is. So firstly, what has actually changed since um, the beginning of this pandemic? Number one, we have structural labor shortages everywhere. Now, only a gut-wrenching recession eliminates those labor shortages. And as I said, I think central banks probably panic as soon as the labor market starts to deteriorate. So those are not going away. And the other lesson from the pandemic is that we've seen how demographics can interact with labor shortages. Because as older people drop out of the labor market, which they did en masse during the pandemic, those labor shortages become much worse. So I think we've discovered that demographics is not just going to be this sort of continuous deflationary force. It actually has this inflationary element to it that happens in labor markets. The second big thing is supply chains. You know, even before all of this sort of geopolitical jiggery-pokery that we've had over the past few years, uh, I think, you know, private companies were were discovering that supply chains had to change. Instead of, you know, just in time, they needed a sort of element of just in case. They needed to build resilience into those supply chains. So there's a private incentive to do that. Then you have the Ukraine war and you have this sort of, increasing geopolitical tensions in the Middle East and the increasing geopolitical tensions between China and the US. And suddenly you've got a sort of public sector incentive to shift supply chains as well. So this is the whole sort of de-risking of supply chains. So de-globalization, as far as I can see, uh, is now gaining traction, you know, much more fiercely than people expected. And actually all of the sort of protectionist policies that people like Trump put in place before the pandemic, they've all remained in place and they're all beginning to distort global trade patterns. The other big thing that's changed is the role of governments. You know, in the 2010s, we had the sort of perfect neoliberal environment, you know, of austerity, uh, governments trying to reduce the size of their balance sheet. And that's gone. You know, we now have this sort of bailout culture where any problem in the world can be solved with fiscal policy. So you have an energy crisis or cost of living crisis, as the politicians call it, an inflation crisis. What do we do? We throw fiscal spending at it. We now have a mortgage crisis, which is ironic because it was central banks raising interest rates in order to deal with the previous energy crisis, uh, the, the, the previous inflation crisis. We now have governments looking at ways to help people pay their mortgage. Now, because the political system is so polarized, there is no hope that we'll ever target any of these fiscal measures to where they're actually needed. So you just get sort of economy-wide, everybody bailouts. So the fiscal regime has completely shifted. And sort of the best signal here is uh, strategic industrial policy. You know, when I joined the Treasury in the late 1990s, if I'd said there was a role for governments in, you know, targeting investment and, you know, supporting various parts of the economy, they would have kicked me out. You know, that was not the world that we were living in. That was not the sort of neoliberal regime. Well, now we have this sort of reconsideration of all of the evidence around industrial policy and economists beginning to say, well, actually, maybe strategic industrial policy can be a good thing 
you know, particularly if we're in this more difficult geopolitical environment where we can't trust China or we can't trust, you know, other parts of the world. So governments now, you know, are beginning to play a bigger role in the economy. You know, Bidenomics in the US is a good example of this. But look at China. You know, China is basically decimating Europe, Europe's car industry over the past 18 months. And so, you know, strategic industrial policy is working in China. It's working in the US. So what are the Europeans going to do? Well, they're going to have to do the same thing. So the austerity era is gone. You know, fiscal policy is back. Strategic industrial policy is back as well. So what does this mean? Well, I always think about this in terms of what I call the super cycle. And the super cycle is in, in, in interest rates and inflation. And it's all about politics. You know, people think that inflation is all about monetary policy. You know, it's, it's all, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But it's not. It's about politics. And it's about the balance of power in the economy. And what happened in the early 1980s is that we tilted the balance of power massively towards capital. So we opened up um, labor markets to immigration. We opened up product markets with globalization. We destroyed the trade unions. We gave independent central banks their role, gave them very explicit inflation targets. That was the sort of, you know, neoliberal dream. Well, that's the bit that's ending because, you know, neoliberalism is now firmly in, in retreat. It started in the mid-2010s with Trump and Brexit and Euroscepticism and all of that stuff, but it's really accelerated over the last three years. So I think that gets you to a world where, you know, you have a sort of secular bear market in bonds. So, you know, bond yields are rising. I think about that in terms of sort of higher lows and higher highs rather than just, you know, continuous increases in yields. Maybe we've gone too far over the past few months. And so now we get a period where yields go down a little bit. But I think the prevailing tendency is going to be higher. I think we have a 2% um, floor on inflation rather than a ceiling. And I think that changes everything for investors. But it's quite subtle. You know, this isn't about, well, we're now going into the 1970s and the whole world is going to look different. This is, this is subtle changes in the economy and subtle changes in what this means for financial markets compared to what we had before. A lot to unpack there, as they say, but <laughs> just on the inflation target uh, piece, which makes absolute sense in terms of how they came up with 2% in the first place, I think was a bit random. I th obviously, the, the, the Kiwis, I think, came up first, and then there was a famous... Some guy made off the, off the cuff remarks in a press conference, and then they had to find a way to <laughs> explain it. Exactly. So, I mean, uh, it's been long touted that, you know, even going back to 2010, I think Olivier Blanchard was saying maybe 4%. But but then you listen to Jerome Powell and he's very much talking about getting back to 2% and they will absolutely do it. But I suppose a question I had for you, you know, given your experience, you know, you've been in, in the midst of policy discussions at the Treasury and spoken to central bankers. I mean, and I've asked other, I've asked Bill Weiss this question before. I mean, do central bankers actually say, well, Let's let's just let inflation slide a little bit higher over time. That we'd be very happy with too. I mean, obviously they're not going to publish that in the minutes, but but you think that is what their mindset now? I think that um, you know, if twelve months ago you'd offered them three percent inflation, they would have jumped to that. You know, they were they were worried not that inflation was going to be stuck at three three and a half percent. They were worried that they were they were sort of slipping into the nineteen seventies. And that they were going to go down in history as complete jokers and charlatans. And that hasn't happened. 
So I think they take a lot of reassurance from that. I get frustrated with journalists continuously asking central bankers if they want inflation at 2% because, you know, what do you expect them to say? You know, they're always going to say that they're absolutely committed to 2%. In reality, it doesn't matter whether the target is 2% or 3%. You just have to have a target. And the problem that they have is that they can't change an inflation target when they're missing the existing one. So, you know, if you've got inflation at three and a half and you say, well, okay, three and a half is all right. Well, what happens if you can't then hit three and a half? You know, you've got this sort of drift. And so from their perspective, you start to lose that nominal anchor. Again, that's a word that they like, not that I like, you know, this idea of inflation expectations and nominal anchors and all the nonsense that central bankers usually talk about. But they believe all of that stuff. So they have to um, deny it. And so what you need is plausible deniability. You have to be in a world where inflation seems to be moving in the right direction, is within, uh, you know, sort of tolerable levels, and so close to 2%. You know, if it's at 5 and increasing, then you can't possibly sustain this sort of bluff. Um, but what you end up with is not that um, central banks come out and say, well, that's it, you know, 3% is fine. What we discover is that they will have a revealed preference for higher inflation. What I mean by that is that if inflation is at three and the economy is growing, they are not going to come in and engineer a massive recession in order to get inflation down that extra 100 basis points. So what we will discover looking back is that actually 3% inflation was fine and they were okay with it. Okay. So where we're at at the moment then, presumably you expect that the Fed is done tightening given where inflation is now and what well, would be happy to start cutting rates if if unemployment was up another half percentage point or how much or wh- how do you think about that? I think that um, if they start to see monthly payrolls turning negative, that would be a, a very clear recession marker. You know, typically payrolls don't contract outside of recessionary periods. So if they see that, I think they cut rates immediately. Um, if um, the labour market remains resilient and they've got, you know, even modest growth in payrolls, uh, I think that they, you know, the hurdle for actually raising interest rates is very, very high. You know, I, I don't see, even if you had a sort of energy price shock um, coming from, you know, the situation in the Middle East, I don't think that triggers more rate hikes. You know, it's, it's going to look very different to how it looked in 2022. You know, in 2022, when they all started to freak out, it was because they were seeing this broadening of inflation pressures. You know, the whole distribution of the CPI had shifted higher. Um, if this was just an energy price shock, you know, coming from the Middle East, uh, it, I, I don't think it would look like that. It would look quite different, and they would probably ignore it. Um, it would be a bigger problem for the ECB and the Bank of England because they tend to be a bit more sensitive to energy prices. It would make it much more difficult for those central banks to actually cut interest rates. But I think, you know, for all intents and purposes, the tightening cycle is basically finished at this point. Just going back to, you know, the changed environment for fiscal policy, as you were talking about, and the end of neoliberalism. Um, So a few different things. Obviously, the the, uh, re-emergence of industrial policy is one thing. And then, as you say as well, solving every crisis with, fiscal support. I think the IMF were out this week or last week saying, okay, can't can't keep doing this or something to that effect. Whereas, you know, going back three years, you had 
modern monetary theorists saying, yes, you can do this as long as you want. I mean, there is a suggestion we had that one-off window where debt levels weren't that high, interest rates were zero. So of course you could be very aggressive fiscally. But I guess your point is now that has got embedded in the system. So it's, so we've got used to that and we're not going to be able to get away from that. But but I mean, you, you know, it's it's ironic. Nobody is saying uh, the, 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 the Rogoff and Reinhardt argument anymore about, you know, once you get above 90% GDP, we all have to go into austerity, as you say. But um, I, I suppose my question is, 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 will there be limits to fiscal policy? And, and if we see, I guess, is that part of your thinking around bonds? If we see this ongoing fiscal bias for action, that you get that old, you know, the, what we were ta- taught in school about crowding out of the private sector via higher yields, is, is, is that it? Or will, I mean, will the rating agencies come in and say, no, you've got to be more constrained on fiscal policy or... You know, or will no, I always, I always laugh when I hear about the rating agencies because it reminds me of sort of 2010 at the UK Treasury. And, um, you know, the government was absolutely obsessed with the idea that it could get downgraded at any point. And so the rating agencies always used to come in for these meetings. And, you know, in my first stint at the Treasury in the early 2000s, you basically sent, you know, this sort of summer intern to meet the rating agencies because you didn't care less. Um, by 2010, you know, it was Gordon Brown that was meeting them in person. And they were sort of bringing in these lavish, you know, by Treasury standards, Marks and Spencer sandwiches to try, <laughs> to try and keep the ratings agencies on site. So I always think back to that. Um, in terms of debt. Well, even on that point, I mean, if you have the UK experience last year, obviously an unusual set of circumstances with the trust uh, experiment and, and obviously the, the pension side of things was an accelerator, but it, it, I suppose it is a, a, an episode to highlight of disrespect for for the external perspective on a on, a, on an aggressive fiscal package and what could yeah, happen. Yeah, but it, I guess yeah. my you know my point about fiscal policy is that the debate is all in terms of are we going back to austerity? Are we going to a world of fiscal dominance? You know, where uh, central banks are forced to su- to support the public finances and they just let inflation go. And actually, I think the likeliest scenario here is a sort of model through scenario where, you know, central banks um, probably have to tolerate a bit more inflation than they did in the past. But, you know, they'll be happy to do that. Um, And, you know, governments are going to be putting more money into the economy than they did before, but not to the extent that they have to sort of worry about the bond vigilantes and, and all of that stuff. And I think that we have a, a sort of weird way of looking at the 2010s because uh, economists look at that period and they say, well, you know, interest rates were really low. And so, you know, debt was sustainable because interest rates were so low. But they were forgetting that, um, you know, austerity and that horrible policy mix that we had, you know, very tight fiscal policy uh, and very loose monetary policy was the thing that was giving us very weak nominal GDP growth. You know, so we had this sort of toxic policy mix. And yes, it kept debt sustainable, but it was horrible from a sort of real economy perspective. What I think is changing here is that the policy mix is changing. So we're going to be in a world where fiscal policy is more expansionary more of the time. You know, not to sort of, you know, silly trustonomics degrees, but it's going to be more expansionary uh, than it was before. And monetary policy is going to be tighter than it was before. And yes, that means interest rates are going to go up. 
But I also think it means that um, growth is going to be stronger than it was in the past. So if you're thinking in terms of R minus G, uh, your R is going up, but your G is going up as well. And you know there are there are lots of reasons for that. So one of them I think is that we, you know, that policy mix contributed to this sort of perma lukewarm economy that we had before, uh, and that was an economy you know where productivity just deteriorated. You know, look at the UK 2010s. We had the weakest productivity in 150 years, so since the Industrial Revolution. And the reason for that is that we just weren't pushing the economy hard enough. You know, companies could just be reliant on cheap workers and cheap debt. And so you had a few superstar companies that were doing investment, were generating huge increases in productivity and good returns, but technological diffusion basically just ground to a halt. I think if we're in a world where that policy mix is actually forcing the economy to work harder, so you don't get crowding out, but you do get more pressure on resources and you get you know, secular labor shortages, you're going to force companies to invest. And so I think you'll get a lot more investment, a lot more productivity growth than we had before. So in that sense, the policy mix is actually better than it was before. Even you know, strategic industrial policy, I think, could have some benefits to the economy. Now, you know, as I said, if you'd said this 30 years ago, you would have got kicked out of the sort of economics magic circle. Uh, but actually, if you look at the actual data, there's lots of evidence where governments, you know, have invested in industries that have actually helped. So, um, you know, there's the sort of World War II experience, so where we have big public sector investment led to big increases in R&D, big increases in productivity across the economy. Um, you can look at um, the space race in the 1960s. So, you know, government um, took over a lot of investment in new technologies related to the space industry. Those filtered through into um, the rest of the economy. You can even go back to the sort of, you know, 1800s where you had a Napoleonic blockade of, of sort of UK, you know, transport with, the, with France. And at the start of that blockade, which I think is sort of 1803, um, France didn't have any sort of a textile industry because they didn't have that sort of mechanized spinning industry that the UK had. So the UK had a massive advantage, but actually blockading trade uh, led to the development of this sort of infant industry that then persisted for decades after that. So it isn't true that, you know, fiscal policy is necessarily bad for the economy. You know, it can have advantages. And I think you have to bear in mind that we've just lived in a 15-year period in Europe where there's been no net public investment. Now, that is just not sustainable. Because we had governments that were so fixated on meeting these really silly fiscal rules, they cut the things that we actually wanted them to invest in. So they cut public infrastructure. They cut green energy. Uh, they allowed themselves to become dependent on Russian energy. You know, a lot of really horrendous policy mistakes were made in that era of austerity, Hopefully now, you know, all of that stuff is gone. Interesting. I mean, and obviously what you're painting there is a very different macro backdrop, which presumably will cont contribute to a, a changed market backdrop in the sense that the QE zero rates obviously was a contributing factor to supporting certain types of stocks as well. Uh, and, and in this environment, whether it's the return of the old economy, presumably, um, but but certainly sounds like that. Uh, listening to you, if you were to paint out a few big asset allocation calls, unconscious of time, over the next decade, 
I mean, you, uh, as you say, secular bear market in in bonds. Presumably, stocks do okay if it's a higher growth environment and if productivity is doing well. But but what are your thoughts on that? And also, any thoughts on currencies? Okay, so yeah, I mean, it's secular um, bear market in bonds. Um, I think the big change here, you know, we talked about the resilience part that are lifted yields. But there's a term premium element to this because. Um, you know, for the last 30 years, we've been in a world where inflation has always been pro-cyclical. So inflation and GDP growth have always moved together. The reason for that is that we never had to worry about supply shocks. We only had demand shocks. So we had just had central banks moving interest rates up and down and sort of getting asset price bubbles. I think if we're looking at a world where inflation is going to be much more volatile than it was in the past, for all of the reasons that we've gone through, but also things like climate change, which will naturally make inflation more volatile, you're going to get more periods like 2022 where you had stagflation. Now, in those periods, what happens is that both bonds and equities sell off at the same time. So where this shows itself in financial markets is that the correlation between bonds and equities, which was always perfectly negative, you know, bonds always had that beautiful hedging property, that begins to weaken. Not because it turns positive like it was throughout the 1970s. It's not going to be positive all the time, but there'll be periods where it's positive, whereas before there weren't. So on average, that correlation becomes weaker. And that means that bonds start to lose some of their equity hedge. Now think about what the term premium is. The term premium was negative because investors wanted to use bonds as this perfect insurance hedge. If they start to lose that insurance hedge, the term premium has to go up. And I think that's what it comes down to. It's not about fiscal policy. It's about these sort of deep underlying shifts in the macro economy. So that gets you the secular bear market in bonds. But on bonds, we've gone a long way in a very short period of time. So I don't think we're just on this sort of linear extrapolation of continuously higher yields. I think there is this pendulum between inflation and recession. We're sort of shifting back towards recession risks that takes some of the heat out of you know yields. But I think the trend is there. In terms of the equity market, I don't think this is net bad for equities. So, you know, people look at this environment, they think, oh my God, this is going to be horrendous for asset prices for the next sort of 10, 15 years. It isn't. It's about the nature of equity markets. So the way I think about it is in terms of growth versus value. So the 2010s, you know, perma lukewarm economy, constant disinflation, zero interest rates, negative interest rates, QE. All of that was the perfect environment for, you know, long duration, US tech companies, growth sectors. And if you look at growth versus value, you can get data on this all the way back to the 1930s. The 2010s is really weird. You know, there is no other period where growth just completely kills value continuously for a decade. So that I think is the big change here. You know, you get this big rotation into value away from growth. You get this change in the way that people are insuring their, um, you know, their bond, the bond part of their um, portfolio, and so I think you have more commodities. Uh, you have more of a thematic approach to this. So instead of just putting money into U.S. tech, you think, well, what are the sectors that actually benefit from deglobalization, from climate change, from decarbonomics, from fiscal policy, from industrial policy? All of these big shifts. How do you identify the bits of the equity market that do well in that environment? And those are the bits that you invest in. So you, you have to be a bit more discerning as opposed to just pumping the money into the Mag 7 stocks. Exactly. 
Great stuff. Um, we, we could go on for a lot longer, but uh, time is against us. So, Dario, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks very much for, for doing this today. So make sure you follow Dario's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a truly global macro-driven world, and it's more important than ever to stay well-informed. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back soon with more exciting uh, content. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.